man, I, I wish I had like uh, a gong or like a chime or, or bell uh, or just, I don't know, like theme music to commemorate this moment. But uh, as of right now, I don't have any of those things. Maybe I'll have some of those things down the road. Uh, but this is the forerunner, a prologue of sorts uh, for the Mahogany Tower. So welcome to the Mahogany Tower, a blog recently turned podcast on race, higher education, and spirituality. Um, and saying that, anytime I say that, I, I kind of smile and chuckle to myself because as it comes out of my mouth, uh, I realize how absolutely ridiculous that sounds. Like race, higher education, spirituality. Those, like, like, what do those things have to do with each other? Um, and I think that's the point. <laughs> uh, those topics don't really go very well together, um, which is kind of why we have the blog to begin with, or the podcast to begin with. Um, but here at the Mahogany Tower, we focus on uh, three topics. Uh, faith, science, and sociocultural identity, not necessarily in that order. And I'll illustrate uh, kind of what we do in the, in the, in the lens that we use uh, with an example, or not even an example, an, an illustration. Uh, I am a Black Christian scientist. And if you're keen, you may observe that none of those really go well together, right? So I'm a Black Christian and so I, I can re regularly kind of feel the tension of uh, being a follower of Christ, but also understanding that this uh, religion, this religious tradition has been used specifically to weaponize the oppression um, of black people around the world, including but not limited to white supremacy, slavery, and uh, all kinds of other things that is specifically disadvantage uh, people of African heritage and other people too. Um, so as a Christian, as a black Christian, I regularly feel that tension, right? But <laughs> I'm also a black scientist. And so I feel uh, much of the same tension for very similar reasons. If you know anything about science, I mean, uh, black people are underrepresented in STEM in the United States. There uh, aren't a lot of scientists in the United States who look like me, but more specifically, science in the past and even sometimes in the present uh, can have like a very strong and sometimes even overt racist undertone. So for instance, there was a period um, in, the, in, the, in the mid and early 20th century where we kind of advanced these theories uh, on the biological inferiority of black people. So black people are biologically inferior to white people and we have all this scientific uh, data and theories to demonstrate that. And down the road, we found out that was kind of a pseudoscience. It was kind of fabricated and all of these other things. But like science can have this like racist undertone. And there are many people in the field of science and even outside of the field of science who would say you don't belong as a black person. And so as a black scientist, <laughs> I can feel that tension. Um, and I regularly kind of have to push and work through those things. But in addition to being a black Christian and in addition to being a black scientist, I'm also a Christian scientist, right? And if you know kind of, I don't know what you know about, you know, Christian history or, you know, just the, the philosophy of science, things of that sort, but Christian, Christianity and science, or even just science and religion in general, don't go super well together. And they don't, they don't have a history of playing nicely, right? And so... Uh, scientists are like, oh, you uh, religious uh, uh, Bible thumpers, you believe all this, uh, uh, these fairy tales and uh, things that don't even make sense. They can't be scientifically demonstrated. And uh, uh, you, you, you believe things that aren't even rational and we can't even conceptualize and understand using empirical uh, study of scientific phenomenon, right? And Religious or Christian folk will say, oh, you guys are heartless and morally depraved and you guys think you can wrap your head around reality and the complexity of God and creation and all these things. And they kind of go back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And so those two groups don't play really nicely with each other. And so as a black Christian scientist, <laughs> there's this ongoing oscillation of kind of going back and forth between different identities. And I think that more or less summarizes a lot of what I end up doing with this blog is I kind of uh, oscillate between different perspectives as a West African immigrant, somebody who identifies as black, 
somebody who uh, also identifies as a follower of Jesus Christ, I'm a Christian, but also being a PhD student, being a researcher, being uh, somebody who engages with data and research and science literally on a daily basis. Um, and so here at the Mahogany Tower, we uh, focus on faith and science and sociocultural identity, all these things that kind of uh, come together synergistically to represent who we are um, as people. So what I'll say about the Mahogany Tower is <laughs> uh, the artistry kind of helps me to be true to myself. What I can say unequivocally is there isn't really much else on the internet that's anything even remotely close to what we do um, because the intersectionality that, we that I, I tend to bring to this discussion is very unique and personal to myself. Um, and so the artistry is iconic and I very much see myself in the art, uh, in, in the production, uh, in what we do here on a regular basis. And so because of that, you'll never see me try and fill a mold and try and be somebody else or misrepresent what we do because part of what makes the Mahogany Tower, I think, beautiful and kind of this unique and uh, well-done artistic expression is because I'm true to myself and that's as a black Christian scientist. It's a very unusual combination, um, but it also helps to create a very iconic uh, and novel uh, and beautiful collection of, of, of uh, you know, artistic productions. The other thing I'll say about it is, uh, I mean, maybe this is me tooting my own horn, uh, but it's not just a hodgepodge of random stuff. Um, I mean, it kind of is, but it's not. Uh, people regularly tell me that it's incredibly well done. They love the topics. They love uh, how I engage and discuss the topics. And I think, again, being a PhD student, being a scientist, uh, being in my word and in the Bible, but also bringing in lots of experiences as uh, a Black person in America, a West African immigrant, I can integrate these in an effective way and help to synthesize people's experiences and put words on something and use illustrations and metaphors that help people to capture things that maybe they've been feeling for months or years or maybe their entire lifetime and they never quite knew how to express, right? And so as an artist, that's what you want to hear. Like, you helped me to figure out something I was feeling that I never knew how to explain or you helped me figure out how to explain something to someone else that I couldn't even figure out how to articulate, right? And so as an artist, you want to be told things like, uh, I, I connected with that, or you, you, you illustrated that in such a deep and thoughtful way, or, you know, it, it helped me to better understand my own life experiences. Um, but it's true. It's a very diverse collection of ideas. I mean, our, uh, our, our collection includes everything from topics on Christian nationalism and how, uh, there isn't really a strong biblical precedent for it, no pun intended, all the way to, uh, the difficulties and challenges of uh, dating as a single black man in my late 20s in a PhD program and 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 the sting of uh, uh, getting to know a really good friend and connecting with her on a meaningful level and basically she deciding she, she was going to ghost me and cut me out of her life without even telling me. Snip, snip. Life is <laughs> very funny. Um, but there's all kinds of stuff and, and the hope is that you uh, connect with it on some level. Uh, my name is Namdi. That is the name I produce under. It is not my first name, and it's not a name that I go by at this particular point in my life, but it is the name I produce all of this artistry under. Uh, it just helps me to manage my online presence a little bit better, so it works uh, better for me. Uh, I started blogging in summer 2017, July 2017 to be specific, um, and I'm transitioning into podcasting, so I'm in the process of uh, doing a lot of that administration on the back end. I'm currently in a PhD program. I'm in my fourth year. It feels like a really long time. Um, but I study human behavior. I identify as a behavioral scientist. Uh, and specifically, I focus on identity-related phenomena. So I uh, look at how our identity as a person influences our attitudes and behaviors, but also investigate and study how this influences how we engage and interact with people um, of other identity groups. But what I thought I would do here in the Forerunner uh, is try and give you a little bit of background about who I am because I think uh, it helps you to connect more with uh, the, the, the podcast episodes or, or the blogs, however it is that you're engaging. And uh, I think that's important, right? Because you want to connect with the artistry and I think connecting with the artist helps you to help you 
excuse me, helps you to uh, do just that. Um, so I'm a West African immigrant. Uh, I first generation Nigerian American. Uh, my family immigrated to the States in the late 80s. I believe this was 1988. So uh, my dad did medical school in Nigeria. Uh, he immigrated uh, to New York City to do residency at Columbia. Residency basically means you're done with medical school, but you're doing additional training to improve your expertise in treating patients. So he did his uh, residency at Columbia University. I was born in New York while he was there. I was born in the early 90s, the only person in my family born in the United States. Um, and so eventually my dad got done with uh, residency in New York and we relocated to Albany, Georgia. So we went down south, right? And we didn't go to Houston or Dallas or Atlanta or Miami, one of these like major southern metropolises or anything like that. We went to Albany, Georgia. Um, and just two things about Albany. Albany is a relatively poor town. It's relatively underdeveloped. You know, unemployment's a little bit higher. Uh, generally, there isn't too, too much there except for fast food and retail and, you know, some churches here and there. Not even churches here and there. The church is like everywhere. Uh, but in general, it's a, it's a reasonably poor town. Um, and it wasn't particularly diverse. When I was growing up, 98% of Albany, Georgia was black or white. Um, and that other 2%, that's Asian, Hispanic, that's literally everything else. Um, and as you could imagine, a town like Albany, Georgia doesn't have a ton of immigrants, West African or otherwise. Um, and so that's <laughs> where I spent uh, all of my youth. I was literally there until I went to college. Um, so Eventually, when we came down to Albany, Georgia, at this point, I was four, maybe five. Um, I go to elementary school and the elementary school that I go to uh, is probably like a six or seven minute walk from my house. And because my dad is a physician and also my mom was a nurse, uh, by almost any measure in Albany or otherwise, we would qualify or uh be classified as higher socioeconomic status, higher income, higher class, however you want to think about it. But in general, we were among the, the more uh, affluent uh, members of the community. Not like filthy rich, but again, we were doing pretty well. We lived in a, in a mostly white neighborhood and this elementary school as a result was mostly white because we know America is segregated. So that influences schools and neighborhoods, all this other stuff. So I went to a mostly uh, white elementary school. And honestly, it was great. Um, I had great teachers. You know, I had cool classmates. Um, I did get teased about being uh, a West African immigrant. Uh, you know, the whole African booty scratcher thing, all that other stuff. If you're familiar or if you have friends that are West African immigrants or if you yourself are a West African immigrant, you're, or even not what, just West African, just African in general, you're familiar <laughs> with the whole line of uh, insults and slighting remarks that kind of come with being uh, an immigrant from an African country. Uh, so I had those things, I had those experiences. What I had going for me was uh, at this elementary school, I was among the most athletic students, sometimes the most athletic student um, in every single grade that I was in. So kindergarten all the way through fifth grade. Um, and so not surprisingly, being athletic or a jock of sorts kind of insulates you from a lot of things. Some of my <laughs> uh, immigrant friends who uh, were not jocks or athletes or as popular at that elementary school, they got teased worse than I did. But again, uh, I was a little bit insulated from that because I was athletic. People picked me first for kickball and soccer and all that stuff. So it helped a lot. Um, I eventually finished elementary school. Um, nothing out of the ordinary there. And then I go to a middle school. But the middle school I go to is in a different community, right? So the elementary school I went to was mostly white. Uh, the middle school that I went to was mostly black. Um, and this was my first time kind of having extended kind of exposure and interaction with black Americans because, um, you know, the neighborhood that I lived in was mostly white and the elementary school that I went to was mostly white. Obviously, kind of I had interactions here and there with black Americans for sure, but not like eight hour worth of eight hours worth of interaction every single day, Monday through Friday. So this was my first exposure kind of having extensive interaction with 
um, you know, black Americans. And I think this is really where a lot of the identity stuff started to materialize for me. Um, because I got to this mostly black environment, um, and I got teased even worse about being a West African immigrant. And it was crazy because the black people who tease me, tease me way more and way worse <laughs> than the white people who tease me. And there are lots of different reasons for that. And I, I can't, I can't get into specifics, but, um, it was way, I got way more crap from the black people than I did the white people. Like unequivocally, without a doubt, it was way worse. And it's funny because, I mean, I couldn't make this connection when I was like 11 or 12, but in hindsight, I'm like, yo, you African too? Like, what the heck? Like the only difference between me and you is I can point to a country on a map and say, this is where I'm from. That's the only difference between me and you. Obviously, like your descendants of slaves and all this other stuff, but you African too, like low key, we're probably from the same tribe and you don't even know that. So the notion that I was getting teased worse by black people than white people, like I, I didn't make those deep connections then, but in hindsight, it was like a really weird thing to happen. Um, and I think as I kind of progressed further throughout this middle school, I realized, man, I'm not white enough for the white people. And I'm also not black enough for the black people. Like, this is crazy. <laughs> Where exactly do I fit in in this community? Not only, not only that, but I wasn't American enough for American people, but I also wasn't African enough for African people. So let me unpack that a little bit. And I talk about this on a, a, a different uh, post on my blog, but... Even though I was born in the United States, even though I grew up in the United States, what people got to understand is as a child, every aspect of your life is controlled by your parents, right? The food that I eat, you know, a lot of the things that I watch and the music that I listen to and the manner of communication and connection and talking and speaking, interaction, hobbies, all that stuff, all of that kind of came from the top down. So even though I lived in America, I was still very much raised in a Nigerian tradition and in a Nigerian household. So there's a lot of aspects of American culture at the time and even now that still go over my head. Like, that's just not my experience. I don't have that connection and it's very foreign to me. So in many ways at the time and even still now, it's like, man, I'm not American enough for American people. But I'm also not African enough for African people for obvious reasons. I was not born in Nigeria. I do not speak Igbo. I do not speak Yoruba. I'm not super well-versed on Nigerian history and politics. I know a little bit more about colonial history, but that's not the same as Nigerian history, right? And so when I'm with people who grew up in Cameroon or in Uganda or in Kenya and immigrated when they were 16 or 17 or 18 or 20 or 25, my interaction with them is very different. And frequently I can feel I'm not, even though I'm Nigerian American, I'm not African enough for these people either. And even at 11 or 12 years old, I was making that connection. I was regularly scrutinized uh, uh, by many of my dad's friends, coworkers, colleagues that came to the house. And these are other Nigerians. And they're like, oh, you can't speak Igbo. How can you be Nigerian and you can't speak it? Like I, I just felt inadequate in my Nigerianness, if that makes sense. I felt inadequate in the extent to which I was embodying and representing my African culture. So I felt uh, this intense identity conflict, right? Like even as early as middle school, like, man, not white enough for white people, not black enough for black people, not American enough for American people, not African enough for African people. And to be fair, like if you're a first generation immigrant or if you know people who are first generation immigrants, this isn't an unusual experience. Um, many of us kind of have this lived experience throughout our youth and even still now sometimes. Eighth grade rolls around. I'm still in middle school. Um, two really big things happen, right? So the first is that I get involved with uh, a Christian youth ministry at my church called Focus. And let me tell you something about Focus. I can't even remember what it stands for. I think it's like Followers of Christ United something, something. something. I, I don't even know. But um, this was my youth ministry for people who were in middle school and eventually would transition to high school. That youth ministry literally saved my life. Not even kidding. 
If not for that youth ministry, I'm 28 years old. If not for that youth ministry, my life would have went in a very, very, very different direction. No cap, not even joking. That ministry and the youth minister and his wife, who weren't even employed by the church, they were all doing this pro bono. Those guys and that ministry, that, that collection of eight or nine other people that were teenagers in middle school and high school, that group literally saved my life, like not even joking. And if you talk to some of the other people in that group, they'll literally tell you the exact same thing. Like my life would have been very different without this group. That group saved me. Um, but this was a cool youth ministry because it was really intended for middle slash high schoolers who uh, wanted to glorify God with their artistic gifts. So uh, a lot of the women in this group danced. Um, some of them, they did praise dancing, if that's a term that kind of means something to you. Um, the guys, we actually rapped. Yes, I used to rap. Low-key, I still do. I think my better days were in the past and behind me, but um, I used to have bars, like for real, for real. Uh, so the girls uh, sang and danced. The guys rapped. Um, but then all of us actually participated in skits. And frequently, a lot of times the guys would do acting for these skits and then the girls would follow it up with a praise dance. It was like a really dynamic artistic production. Um, and that was really my first exposure to the arts. And uh, that's part of where I kind of saw I was actually excelling as an artist. Uh, one of the things that really helped me was I learned my lines really quickly. And I think in hindsight, what it really is, is I... I, I can learn things faster sometimes than other people. And I also just soak up information really well. Uh, I literally knew my, I, I knew the script so well that I was telling other people their lines in addition to mine. Um, so I literally knew the entire script from cover to cover just after looking at it for like 45 minutes, an hour. Um, and they weren't super long skits. They were like five minutes, seven minutes. But I learned the script like very, very quickly. And it helped me because like when we came to practice for these skits, I didn't have to practice my lines. We were really focusing on position your body like this and make sure the light hits you this way and uh, really just kind of engaging with that artistic expression, being very animated, being on stage, being the center of attention, really. I was more extroverted back then than I am now. Uh, but this was my exposure to the arts and it was great and I loved it. And if I had done more in that space, I think I could have done, uh, I could have done really well as, as a, as a, you know, a person in theater, but my life just didn't go in that direction. But even now, I'm still kind of really interested in art, um, other forms of artistic expression. So I'm grateful to have that experience with that youth group, right? Um, the other thing that happened when I was in eighth grade was that my mom gets cancer. And I, I guess I'm what, 13 at this point? I don't know a ton about cancer. Um, but my dad calls this big family meeting. My dad didn't really do that, have family meetings. Like, hey, look, here's the situation. We're going to get through this together. Um, and I don't know anything about cancer, but it's like, yo, like, I know enough to know people die. Like, I'm not stupid. Um, so this is a big deal. And that moment, even when I was 13 years old, it was really pivotal for my faith because it's like, yo, like, my mom could die at any moment. Literally. And I'm not like 40 or 50 or 60. I'm literally 13. I could lose my mom tomorrow. Um, so I got to be prayed up. You know, I got to be in my Bible. I need to be in my word. I need to be getting inspiration as I go to church. Uh, I need other spiritually minded people around me. Like, and again, I'm 13 at this point, but I was making those connections. Like if I'm going to make it through this moment, if I'm going to make it through this chapter, I have to be spiritually grounded and kind of have that circle of people around me. Um, but then I get to high school um, <laughs> and uh, high school has all kind of different themes. There are a lot of things that happen in high school. I'm going to, you know, condense this obviously for the sake of time. Uh, but there were like themes of class and, and, and grieving because my mom would die eventually. Uh, identity and, and sexuality. Lots of themes with sexuality. Um, but yeah, let's talk about this class piece for a second. Um when I got to high school, my high school was probably more diverse than my middle school. Um, 
And one of the reasons why is we had way more middle schools in that city than high schools. So people just didn't have as many options, even with all the segregation that takes place in America and in that city, like there just wasn't as many options. So black, white, Asian, Hispanic, we all got crammed in these four high schools. So my high school was a little bit more diverse than my middle school, but it was super segregated. And by that, I mean, <laughs> um, all of the white students that were at my high school um, and, and there were like maybe like 20% of the student body. So all the white students that were in my high school, they were all in AP and honors classes. And I was in that group too. I was in those AP and honors classes as well. Um, but almost every single one of them. And in hindsight, that makes sense because uh, for the white students that were in this uh, high school, many of their parents were, you know, doctors or lawyers or, you know, nurses or... Uh, physical therapists, like again, higher socioeconomic status, higher income, higher class, things of that type. And so based on what we know about America and education and income and SES and glass, it makes sense that in high school, they were kind of on the college track, taking these like more rigorous honors and AP classes. Um, but they were also like super segregated from uh, the rest of the student body. So I was actually in that group. I took way more classes with with white people than most of the other students in that school. Um, so they were kind of disproportionately represented in that. And I even kind of noticed, it's like, I'm black, but I'm in these classes too. But my dad being a physician or being, you know, uh, you know, my mom being a nurse, just being higher income, higher SES, it's kind of afforded me the opportunity to kind of be with these students and things of that type. And so there was this intense kind of, segregation, not just based on race or racial segregation, but also based on class too. Like the honors and AP classes is always going to be people that are, not always, but mostly going to be people that are higher SES because uh, it affords them, you know, more opportunities and things of that sort. Um, so there's a big theme with sexuality too, right? And I think um, there's adult you know, subject matter in this particular portion. So if you don't want to hear that, you should skip ahead maybe five or seven minutes or something like that. Um, but there was a big theme with sexuality. And I think um, by the time I got to high school, I was 14 at this point, 15 at this point, um, 14 to be specific. But by this point, the way boys and girls are talking, it's different. The jokes that we're making, they're different. We're, I'm getting to a point in my life where I'm starting to in, face harsh scrutiny if, you know, I haven't been, uh, if, I, if I haven't uh, had sex with a woman or if I've never seen porn before or all these other kind of things. Like I'm starting to get to the point in my life where if I'm like the kid that doesn't know anything about sex, it's actually going to be a problem. Um, and so even though I grew up in this very, very, very sheltered environment and my parents were very protective of me in that regard, literally, they wouldn't even let me have female friends. They're like, hey, only have friends who are guys. I don't want any girls calling the house for you. You can't date nobody. Like, you only need male friends. <laughs> uh, my parents were super protective in that regard, but I was getting to a point in my life where like, if I don't know anything about girls or sex, it's actually going to be an issue. And of course, during this point, my body is starting to change. I got hormones coursing through my system. And obviously the women or the girls I'm going to school with, they're kind of changing as well. And, you know, you're trying to connect differently uh, with people of the opposite gender. And so um, I wanted to experiment sexually. I wanted to, you know, engage with that particular aspect of my life too. I don't know anything about sex. I really don't know anything about girls, but... Uh, this is high school and that's that's what people do in high school. I remember I was um I was watching a show actually this past weekend, Never Have I Ever, um, which is a show that's based on Mindy Kaling or Mindy Kaling's life. I don't know how to pronounce her last name. Uh, but Mindy Kaling is like this West, uh, she's um an Indian immigrant. She immigrates from India to uh the United States, and uh she gets to high school and she's like this nerdy you know, uh, 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 Indian girl, this nerdy, awkward Indian girl. And she's like, the show is basically based on these two themes in her life. I want to be popular. So I'm accepted by my classmates. I got to shed this image as a dork. The other thing I need to do is have sex. And that's, those are kind of the big themes of the show. 
And I feel like I identify with that a lot because that was kind of my, those are, those are big themes in my uh, time in high school as well. I need to be accepted by my peers uh, and I need to have sex. And so I remember the very first time I sexed a girl, um, I, I sent her a picture of my penis. I'm like, Hey, I'm just going to do this and see what happens. And she got the picture. She sent me back a smiley face and I was off to the races after that. I'm like, yo, I can just be out here. I got a camera phone. Now I can just be out here sending pictures of whatever you might send me a picture back doing, uh, you know, um, I was literally like texting, you know, girls erotic literature and they would text back. It was like, it was very dramatic. Um, but again, you're in high school, so that's kind of what you do. So I'm sending images and pictures. I'm, you know, texting people erotic, you know, uh, 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 theme text messages of what we would do together intimately and stuff like that. I had a handful of sexual encounters um, here and there. Uh, but sexuality was a big theme in high school. It's like, you know, I don't really know anything about girls or sex. So uh, it was very much a pursuit of the Holy Grail in that regard. Um, and I mean that in the worst way possible. It wasn't me necessarily trying to exploit uh, or manipulate women. It was really like, let me find a girl that I like and see if she's willing to have sex with me. Um, there was also these big themes with identity as well. Um, I continued to wrestle with my identity in high school. Like, no cap. I uh, got to high school... And there was a portion of high school where I was like, yo, like I'm going to be um, a gangster, right? And so I grew up, um, I'm, this West, I'm this nerdy West African immigrant, um, child of a physician, grew up in this all white neighborhood, very sheltered. But I'm like, man, I got to improve my street credibility because these black people I go to school with and even the white people I go to school with, they don't take me seriously. As a black person and just as a person in general, I got to improve my street cred. And so I decided, more or less, uh, I was going to take on this identity as a gangster. Not in the sense I was going to be in a gang because, <laughs> like, I couldn't get jumped into a gang. I can't kill somebody. Like, I, I could never actually be in a gang. That would never, ever work. Um, but I could uh, pose as somebody who has proximity to it. Like, I'm not in the gang, but I have friends who are gang members, and they tell me about drugs and murdering people and all this stuff so literally i remember there were like three or four weeks where literally i would just come home every day and i would sit on my computer and read everything i could find about being in a gang getting jumped into a gang participating in a gang gang related activity uh, i knew literally everything about crips and bloods and a little bit about folk and alliances and california and recent developments in new york i literally just nerded out to it it was the weirdest thing um i learned to crip walk because i wanted to be like snoop dogg i'm like man the crips are cool they got their own little unique dance you mean to tell me i could be doing this dance on the sidewalk somebody can shoot me like yeah like let's do that um it was the dumbest thing ever um, but that, that again, like, again, this is also before I become a Christian, right? So I don't really have a strong sense of identity. I'm desperately trying to figure out who am I and what am I, who am I going to be? Even now as a 28 year old single Christian guy, I still like think about those things. Who am I? What am I? Who am I going to choose to be? Cause those are decisions you make every day, right? There was also this theme of identity erasure. Um, I was teased in elementary school about being a West African immigrant. I was teased even worse in middle school about being a West African immigrant. This was teasing mostly by black people. Um, by the time I got to high school, I kind of realized if I can pose or pass as somebody who isn't African, then I won't be teased in this way anymore. So if I could suppress this identity or erase this identity... I won't really have to deal with this. And so that's really what I engage in. I engage in identity suppression, identity erasure, trying to distance myself from my heritage and from my culture. Um, the best illustration of this, I remember I created a MySpace page. Literally, you can talk to anybody I went to high school with. I created a MySpace page, but I didn't create it under my name because I remember I used to hate introducing myself to people because if you're, a, if you're an immigrant from anywhere... You know, or if you know immigrants, uh, a lot of times your name is telling of the fact that you, or of your ethnic 
origin or your heritage, right? It's kind of baked into your name. So when I introduced myself to people, it was very clear. I don't know where this guy's from, but he's not, he's not from here, right? So I hated introducing myself to people. I hated roll call because anytime there was roll call, like they would mispronounce my name and laugh. It was a whole big thing. Um, but I created this MySpace profile and I created it under the name Darnell because, I mean, to me, that was a very ethnic and black sounding name. Like nobody would ask me where I'm from if I told them my name was Darnell. Uh, but that was me trying to pass as something that I wasn't, right? That was me trying to erase my heritage and my identity uh, strictly for the purpose of trying to avoid a stigma and scrutiny and judgment and mistreatment uh, based on, you know, my ethnic background. And it was tough because I would go to a lot of these uh, African and Caribbean Association events that my dad would drag me to because there were literally a total of like 25 or 30 uh, African families in this community and they all kind of knew each other. And they would talk about, oh, African culture is so beautiful. And man, you just got to go to Nigeria and see it. Like, man, like just don't forget where you come from. And there was, very, there was just a strong sense of pride. And I was always torn because it's like, you say it's something to be proud of, but all the people that I'm close to and all the people I'm friends with, like, they don't feel that way. I mean, I get teased about this at school and you're here trying to tell me it's this thing to be proud. So I, again, wrestling with it and I have to decide, is it something to be proud of or is it something to hide, right? And ultimately I landed on identity erasure. I just gotta pretend to be something that I'm not. Um, I also <laughs> went through this phase. This is a different thing. So I did the gangster thing. I did the identity erasure thing. I also went through this phase of like wanting to be a pretty boy. And let me tell you a little bit about that because I think... Um, it goes back to the sexuality theme. In high school, if you're not, especially as a guy, if you don't have exposure to sex or girls or women, whatever, like uh, you just become harshly scrutinized. But I learned something, and this is kind of me being a social scientist before I'm a social scientist. I kind of realized I don't actually have to do all this stuff with girls. I just have to look like I've done those things or I have access to those things or... Um, I could do those things if I wanted to. Or maybe there are lots of different girls who want to be with me. I don't actually have to have sex with anybody or have a girlfriend or do any of those things. I just have to look like I'm desirable because women don't want a man that no other woman wants. And that doesn't mean, oh, I'm going to go for the guy that has like 30 different women throwing themselves at him. But you have to look desirable, right? Nobody wants to date a scrub. And so I kind of realized if I can look like I'm sexually talented or sexually experienced or I know a lot about girls or I have access to a lot of different women, that actually would help me to boost my reputation and that could actually in, uh, indirectly improve my access to women. This, I mean, it's a win-win. And so I went through this whole pretty boy phase, like I'm only going to wear Ralph Lauren and I'm going to have all the best clothes and all this stuff. And I could do that because my dad... Uh, was a physician. He was pretty tight about money, but I still found ways here and there to kind of uh, buy things that I wanted. Um, and so I did wear, you know, reasonably nice clothes. And, you know, I was kind of recognized as being someone who was a little bit better dressed at various points in high school once I kind of figured out the system. Uh, but ultimately, I was just wrestling with identity. And that was that was a big theme throughout high school. Um I grieved a lot in high school as well. My mom died at the start of my 10th grade year of high school. Um, that, that, that changed the family dynamic a lot um, because I was much closer to my mom um, and my dad was like the disciplinarian of the family. Like you go to dad when you're in trouble. <laughs> go to mom for everything else, but you go to dad when you're in trouble or when you need money. Um, so when my mom died, it's like, well, okay, I, I'm kind of left with this figure who has primarily acted as a disciplinarian in my life, but, you know, I got everything else from the parent who just died. So as you would imagine, like, again, my relationship with my dad at the time, I only kind of saw my dad express two emotions. There was stress and there was anger, if you want to call stress an emotion. So... That was my exposure kind of in interactions with my dad. And given he was like the only parent that I had at this point, it definitely put a strain on the parent-child dynamic and relationship. And it was just difficult. 
I didn't really want to be at home. I looked for every opportunity to not be at home. And I think that's where kind of youth ministry helped me out a lot because I, I would go to this function or this event and I just, I was grieving. So I just needed, I, I just couldn't be at home in my house, in my room, thinking about um, a situation that I felt like was pretty miserable. Um, my schoolwork suffered as well. I uh, started cutting class on a pretty regular basis. I would go to school. I just wouldn't go to class because I think for me it was about rebellion. So I'll go. I just won't participate. Um, so I, I mean, I got tied in with the wrong crowd. Um, and they weren't like doing drugs and stuff like that. I think ultimately these were just people who uh, didn't really care a lot about school. Um, and I was just chilling and I didn't go to a great high school, so I could chill and I would still like do okay in my schoolwork. Um, I think sexuality became a big theme around this time as well because I was hurting and I was in pain and I wanted to feel good. And I'm like, Hey, you know, if I have um, a girl or girls that I'm talking to, it gives me the opportunity to make them feel good and they can also make me feel good. And I'm uh, grieving and I'm in pain and I, you know, having somebody there can help me to feel understood and feel connection. Um, and that's probably, that's probably not the healthiest coping, uh, mechanism, but I was like, yo, like I just, I'm, I'm going to satisfy this grief, um, in the form of, you know, sexual gratification and stuff like that. Um, and my, my walk with God suffered too. I'm like, Hey, I know, women and girls are not the answer and they're only <laughs> going to take me so far. And I know what the Bible says about sex before marriage and all this other stuff, but honestly, I don't really care right now because I feel really bad and I want to feel good. Um, so my walk with God really suffered during that point too. Um, but long story short, I emerge on the other side of uh, a very negative cycle. Um, and I start applying to colleges and I'm a senior in college, excuse me, not senior in college, senior in high school, um, but I kind of floated my way through high school. Like my mom died and everything kind of went sideways after that. So I'm applying to college as a, as a, as a high school senior and feeling like, man, my high school was a waste. I don't have anything to put on these applications. So I'm applying to schools. I'm getting rejected from schools that I probably should have been admitted to, but I didn't deserve to because I didn't work very hard. Um, so when I got admitted to the university of Pittsburgh, um, I felt like, it was a blessing. It was a huge opportunity. In fact, they gave me an academic scholarship too. Um, and I'm like, man, I don't want to waste this opportunity. Um, so I go to the University of Pittsburgh and <laughs> um, two major things happened while I was in college. There were other things too, but I'll just focus on the two and then um, continue in the, in the narrative. One was there was culture shock. Not in the sense I'm not college ready because I'm the youngest of four siblings so by the time I got to college, I kind of had a sense of how things were supposed to work. But culture shock in the sense I had never been in an environment this diverse before. And this was the first time in my entire life that people inquired about where I was from. And when they found out I was Nigerian, they were enthusiastic about it and they were excited about it and they were interested Um. And they were like, oh my gosh, like, tell me more. Like, I want to hear about Nigerian heritage and culture. I'm like, wait, what? No jokes, no teasing. Like, I don't have to hide who I am. I don't have to pass for something that I'm not. I don't have to distance myself from my culture. This is the first time in my entire life. Well, not the first time in my entire life. The first time um, over an extended period of time in my life that I felt I can genuinely take pride in who I am. Um, and I think it was then I realized that there was never anything wrong with my heritage or my culture, any of those things. I was just in an environment that didn't value heritage and culture and even diversity on some level. Um, and now I was in an environment that did. And so I could take pride in who I was. Um, but it was so embarrassing because I had spent so much of my life hating my heritage and culture. And now people were asking about it. And I'm like, well, I don't really know anything because I was ashamed of it for like almost all of my life. Right. So that was a really difficult transition for me. Um, that was a really difficult transition for me. Um, but the other thing that happened while I was in college was I, uh, I became a Christian. So I got to college and um, one, of the, one of the things I realized about high school was 
I got into a lot of trouble in high school because I had way too much time on my hands, right? So if I can make myself really, really, really busy, I won't have time to get distracted by girls and fooling around and all this other stuff, right? So I was really trying to insulate and protect myself from uh, idle time because idle time kind of led to bad decisions. And so I was involved in all these different student organizations. I was getting literally perfect grades in school, getting 4.0 after 4.0. But very quickly, I just started to idolize my schoolwork and my career. It literally became the most important thing. Um, So I get involved in this campus ministry and uh, they asked me to study the Bible and I do. And so we're studying the Bible and studying the Bible Um, and at this point in my life, I'm reading, I'm praying, like I grew up doing those things. So by the time I got to college, I'm not going to parties. I'm not using drugs. I'm not messing around with girls. For the most part, I have a pretty boring college experience. I went to class and I had extracurriculars. Um, and that was really kind of it. Uh, but as I studied the Bible with these, uh, these guys, I kind of realized, um, part of being a Christian is having God as the most important thing in your life. And for me, God was part of my life and he was included in my life, but he wasn't the most important thing. I was more excited about getting perfect grades. I was more excited about getting interviews for really big companies. I was more excited about the prospect of getting my MBA at the Harvard Business School or going to Yale or Stanford. I was like really excited and really into my career. And I really saw God as like a way to get there. It's almost like I was trying to manipulate God. Like, yeah, I'll do all these things, but you just make sure that you do your part. Make sure I get into this school and I get this interview and this job. Um, And so very quickly, I kind of saw like, that's not really the way a relationship with God is supposed to work. That's not really the way a relationship with Jesus is supposed to work. Um, God is supposed to be the most important thing, so much so that if you only had God, that would be more than enough. And that just wasn't where I was in my faith. That wasn't where I was in my walk. And I'm like, okay, amen, cool. We get sidetracked. Um, I can be humble enough to see and understand uh, that there's something fundamentally missing in my walk. So uh, we talked about that. We talked about baptism and, you know, getting my wa- my sins washed away and being right with God. Um, and April 2012, I believe it was April 21st or April 22nd, um, I got baptized, you know, and I became a Christian. And boy, oh boy, that first year as a Christian, it was wild. Um, but amen, I, I made it through. And uh, I mean, that was probably the most important, not probably, that was the most important thing that happened in college. There were lots of other cool and interesting things too, but um, I've been a Christian for eight eight and a half years now. It'll be nine um, this coming April. Um, So I graduate from college and um, I get to Philadelphia. And uh, Philadelphia is cool because uh, Philadelphia is a very... uh, I love that stinking city. Philadelphia is a very pro-black city. Um, And I think part of that is Philadelphia as a city is, it was like 48% black, 46% black. It's overwhelmingly black, but there's also a ton of history in Philadelphia as well. Philadelphia is one of the oldest cities in America. And so not only are there a lot of black people, like a a central, uh, what do they call it? Like a, like a, Uh, a concentration of black Americans and stuff like that. But there's a lot of history in Philadelphia as well. Like a lot of history concerning race relations, some of it good and a lot of it not good, in fact, bad. Um, And so being in a city like Philadelphia was helpful for me because as a West African immigrant, there were just a lot of things about black history and black culture that I just didn't understand and I wasn't familiar with. Yes, I look like all these other people, but my experience as a West African immigrant is very, very, very different. So being in this pro-Black city uh, was helpful for me in a lot of different ways because uh, there were just a lot of things I didn't know when I didn't understand. Again, I looked like all those other people, but in terms of identity, um, the way I saw and view myself was a little bit different, not in the sense I didn't think of myself as black, but we just didn't have the same experiences. I didn't grow up poor. I didn't grow up in poverty. Um, I grew up in this very high SES uh, household where, you know, we're West African immigrants. It was just a completely different experience. So being in this pro-black city was helpful. Um, 
Philly was also good because culture. I got so much exposure to the African diaspora in Philadelphia. And I think Philadelphia is where I kind of learned <laughs> a lot, for better or worse, of uh, colonial history. Um, so Philly was cool because I had every aspect of the diaspora at my fingertips. And many of these people actually became really close friends. I had people who literally just immigrated from the Ivory Coast or, uh, you know, stinking Ghana or Senegal or South Africa or Kenya or whatever. And literally they're 27, 28, 29. They've only been, you know, in the United States for a couple of months and they're at Drexel for school or they're at Penn, you know, uh, in law school or, you know, doing medicine or whatever. So literally people who just immigrated from Africa, right? There are also people like me who are first generation uh, West African immigrants, right? So maybe they're Cameroonian or Senegalese or Ghanaian. Uh, they're from Niger, uh, wherever. And they came when they were six or seven or eight, or maybe they were born here. And so they kind of have that bicultural experience like I do, where they have exposure to a lot of African culture, a lot of exposure to American culture as well. And they don't really fit perfectly well in either group, right? So I had that. I had the exact same thing on the Caribbean side. I had people who were Haitian and people who were Jamaican and people from Trinidad and Tobago. I was like, wait a minute. I got black people in the Caribbean. I didn't even know that, right? Like Puerto Rico, Dominican Republic. I'm like, yo, like some of these jokers are black, like black, black. Um, so it was different, right? Because I didn't grow up with that. In Albany, I didn't necessarily get a ton of exposure to that at you know, the University of Pittsburgh, because we had black people, we didn't have that many black people. Like Philly is 46% black. So I just interacted with a lot of black people. Um, and then I had people who, again, weren't West African immigrants or, you know, Caribbean immigrants, and they're not first generation. They're literally just descendants of slaves. And we're all together in the same city. So I got so much exposure to the black diaspora, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Because um, again, all of that is colonial history, right? <laughs> like uh, the fact that they speak French, you know, in Senegal, or they're speaking English in Ghana or Kenya. Like there's reasons why we all have these connections to each other. And it's not just because we have dark skin. It's because uh, being colonized in this way uh, gave us all these uh, connections, uh, aside from the fact that we're all of darker complexion and of African heritage. Um, the Christian community was cool too. I think um, this was the first time in my, well, not the first time. Let me be more specific. So I became a Christian in college. Um, the church I was a part of in college was cool. Um, but when I got to Philly, this was the first time I felt like these aren't just people that I go to church with, but these are people that I can literally see myself being friends with for the rest of my life. Like I would introduce you to, uh, my family, I would introduce you to my coworkers. Like they're just really cool and fun people. And we, we really had fun as we pursued our relationship with Jesus. We really had fun as we pursued our relationship with God. Um, and I think again, it also helped that a lot of these people were also West African or Caribbean or black. So there was that connection too, but it was just a genuinely fun Christian community. And um, we saw people become Christians. We saw people have victory in their walk with God. Like it was fun being a Christian in that community. Um, and those are some of my fondest memories as a Christian. It was great. Um, I got exposure to dating culture as a single Christian man. That's a whole different conversation, but, um, I went on a whole lot of dates, you know, and, uh, you can, well, were they dates? I don't know. Maybe that's not the best way of say, saying it. I um, got to know lots of different um, Christian women. Again, it was there was no um, sexual undertones or anything like that. Like um, since high school, I haven't really kind of indulged in that way. Um, but I got to know a lot of different girls. I connected with a lot of different girls. And I think this was helpful for me because, again, remember, I grew up in a very sheltered environment. I wasn't even allowed to have female friends. So I had to learn what that looked like and learn what that looked like in a Christian context. And what if I were to start dating, if I were to romantically be involved with somebody, what are the things I would be looking for? What are the things that uh, I would be seeking out? What are the things that 
I would find attractive and appealing, like what would be the turn-ons and what would be the turn-offs and all these other things. And when I was in college, I didn't date anybody. My philosophy was my entire life is being supported by my father. He's paying my tuition and he's paying my room and board. Like literally my dad is paying for everything. So I don't really feel comfortable dating anybody because that seems kind of weird to say I'm going to pursue a romantic relationship and my dad is financing my entire life. So when I graduated at 21, that was the first time I was like, you know, this is a place where I'm in my life. I have a job. I have a career. I have an apartment. I legitimately feel like I can get to know people um, because I can support myself financially. And if I wanted to get married tomorrow, I could do that because I have an income and I have the means. Um, so I, I think I got to know a lot of different women. I saw the good, the bad, the ugly, not in them, but just in terms of dates that went really, really well, dates that went really, 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 really not well. And then kind of everything in between. <laughs> and your boy got some stories like for real, for real. Um, working was cool. Um, I experienced a great deal of success. I think from a career perspective, I graduated in the top 2% of my class I went on to work at this very prestigious consulting firm, a uh, pretty white-centric environment, relatively conservative, because um, they were paying people a crap ton of money. So there were just kind of strong norms about what's expected. Um, and it was cool because I had this really great job and I was getting paid, in all humbleness, a lot of money. Um, I could travel the world. I could go to New York and I could go to Texas and, you know, California and you know, Europe and South America and, 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 and Asia. And I actually went to probably a solid 15 countries or so in my three-year window in Philadelphia just because I had the means to do so. I had the resources to do so. And um, I really valued it. I think I value experiences more than things. Um, I've talked about that a little bit. Um, but yeah, I had a ton of fun because to me, it's like, you know, I'm not... Because I'm a Christian now, I approach my career a little bit differently. It's like, look, I want to be excellent. I want to do a great job, but I don't live to work. Um, it's kind of a means to an end. I want to be competent and I want to be promoted and recognized for what I do. But my life is really about the things I do outside of work. Um, and so I was just having a great time and I was really enjoying kind of um, what my lifestyle afforded me. And I was being responsible with my money. I wasn't like, uh, just making it rain and doing a whole bunch of garbage and nonsense. But I was having a great time, like for real, for real. Um, but I think one, I think the most important thing that happened while I was in Philadelphia, and I'm bringing it in for a landing, I promise, um, was that I feel like in Philadelphia, I became racially conscious. Um, and so I, I, I don't know if you've kind of seen this theme, but I've wrestled with identity basically all of my life. And not in the sense, oh, I'm going to commit suicide or I'm depressed. Like, not that kind of wrestle. Just like, who am I and what am I and who do I want to be? And I think part of that was being first generation. It just creates a lot of complexity. I think the other piece of that was like literally feeling excluded by a lot of Black people in different ways. Um, but also feeling... Um, I think specifically in Philadelphia, I think that's when I started to realize I may not be good enough for white people either, even in spite of all of the things that I've done, like go to college, like graduating in the top 2%, like graduating, uh, excuse me, like attending and working at a, um, a prestigious consulting firm. Um, and I'll illustrate why in just a second. Um, but up to this point in my life, I hadn't really experienced a lot of racial discrimination. Now, I had been mistreated because of my ethnic background. People would tease me about my name and tease me about being African. But I had never experienced any like discrimination on the basis of being Black. And I consider that a privilege because I know lots of other people did and do. But up at that point in my life, it's like I haven't really experienced a ton of racial discrimination. Um, but I was also a lot of around a lot of... Um, West African, West Indian, you know, Caribbean, and even Black American people. And I know they had really different experiences for me. So I was kind of hearing from them, learning from them. But there was something that happened, right? Um, and this is June 2015. And I think uh, June 2015, if you didn't know, this is um, 
the Dylan Roof, um, you know, hate crime. So he goes into this church in South Carolina and he more or less, like he prayed with them apparently for an hour. And after an hour, he just starts opening fire and just laying to waste all these black people. And apparently one of the things that he said, and this is kind of documented in various news articles, he specifically said, I am here to kill black people. And I read those stories and I've, I've talked about this on my blog. Um, I read those stories. I literally have not been the same ever since. And it's been five years, five and a half. My life, my perspective, like what I think about America, my conceptualization of race relations, where we are as a country, ever since June 2015, I have not been the same person ever since. And I want to be clear on what that means. I'm not saying I have hate or ill will or spite in my heart, but you have these pivotal moments in your life, these pivotal experiences in your life, and you're like, I can never go back, right? And I think for me, I can never go back to what I used to think about race relations in America, because I think for me up until that point, um, I had always just assumed, and this is my fault, I take full responsibility for it. I'd always just assume like this, this, this tension, this tension between white and black people on, you know, the topic of race relations, it's a matter of miscommunications, misunderstanding, you know, a lack of empathy. Like we can really, uh, work through this. I don't believe, like literally, I didn't believe that discrimination was a real thing. Um, I did believe it existed. I just didn't think, believe it existed on a wide level. Um, and I think part of that was it wasn't my experience. And I think what the Dylan Roof incident kind of demonstrated for me, keep in mind, I'm a West African immigrant. I didn't grow up with a lot of the experiences that a lot of Black Americans had. I also grew up in a very high socioeconomic status household. So again, I didn't grow up in the hood with the experiences a lot of Black Americans would have. I think what I realized in that moment, in June 2015, was you cannot project your life experiences to create universal truths. That is not how life works and that's not how reality works. And I think a lot of our issues with the topic of race relations today is that so many people are of the school of thought, I don't know any racist people, so racism doesn't exist. I've never discriminated up against somebody, so that means discrimination doesn't exist. I don't have any prejudice, so that must mean that prejudice doesn't exist. I don't know anybody who's been profiled, so that must mean that profiling doesn't exist. And so we create these universal truths to frame and shape our understanding of reality, but simply because you don't have experience or exposure to something, that doesn't mean it's not real. And I think for me, I wanted to believe the good of America. Like I wanted to legitimately believe. I haven't had this experience. Um, I don't believe it's a major issue. I don't wanna believe it's a major issue. But by this man's own account, he was there to shoot and kill black people. And it literally rocked my world. And I have not been the same ever since. And I think following that, there was this complex journey with identity. And it's still kind of ongoing today. But I tell people now, and it's, it's crazy to say, but I tell people now... It was in June 2015 as a 20, what, like 25 year old? Tw no, not 25, 24, maybe 23. I don't know, somewhere in my early 20s. Uh, I reached the conclusion I am a black man in America. And it's crazy because I've been a black man in America all of my life. But it wasn't until that exact moment I was like, I'm literally like, I'm a black man in America. Like I just, I couldn't connect the dots. I just wasn't conscious of who I am and my experience and how my identity as a person shaped and fit and integrated into a larger system and society 
and reality wherein there is tension between people of different racial groups, perhaps especially white and black people, um, for many of the reasons uh, that have to do with white supremacy and colonialism and, 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 and slavery and a couple of other things as well. But like it, it wasn't until my early 20s I, I, I made this connection like, I'm a black man in America. I've been a black man in America all my life, but I didn't realize that until this exact moment. And I think that's one of the reasons why identity is such an interesting and complex phenomenon to study because it's, it's dynamic and it's fluid and it's intricate and it, there are so many layers and there's an element of intersectionality and all these different things. But literally, it wasn't until my early 20s I reached the conclusion, I am black and I'm in America and that means something. Because this guy literally went into the church to shoot black people. And what's even crazier about that is by his own account, he thought he was doing America a service. He thought he was making the country better. That, that's a whole different conversation. I don't even have time to get into that. But I think seeing that experience, having that experience, um, and just kind of the subsequent conversations and discussions and the oversights on race relations, not just in the world at large, but also in the church, kind of made me realize there is a really, really, really big disconnect. Um, and so going into my PhD program, I decided to start the Mahogany Tower to largely kind of integrate and summarize a lot of these things, right? Because I'm a Christian, but I'm also black, but now I'm also a scientist who studies a lot of these phenomenons and topics. And so I'm constantly thinking about my identity and wrestling with my identity and feeling the tension and exploring different ideas and thinking about church history and American history and race relations. And it's, it's been a fun journey. It's been a really complex journey. It's been also a painful and difficult journey. Um, and I'm still learning every single day. Um, but this is the forerunner, right? Um, welcome to the Mahogany Tower. We're going to be talking about science, faith, and sociocultural identity, not necessarily in that order. Um, so have fun while you're here. We're always going to have a good time. Um, you're always free to reach out to me, uh, but we'll be in touch very soon.